0: Today, what is my first Christmas message? I've never actually, I've never actually, it's never been the rotation where I would preach on Christmas. Um, so I'm excited and nervous. I've had this idea in my head for about a month and I've been praying about it and meditating on it and started preparing it and I hope, I pray that um, that God brings it all together because it's not just going to be the just the normal Christmas message. And you know, there's debate about whether or not this is actually the day Christ was born. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. I think it. I I believe it's a good thing to celebrate the birth of Christ and to remember it. And I hope by the end of this message, you will see why. Um, I believe that. Why is it a good thing to be reminded of the incarnation of Christ? But to start, we're going to start in a strange place. If you'll turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And while you're turning, I'll pray. Father, we thank you again. I thank you for the beautiful music that we have, the musicians and singers that you've blessed us with, the amazing songs that have been written through the years and are still being written. That truly glorify your name, God. I pray that um, we would always seek out those songs and sing them from our heart. I pray now as we look at the incarnation, as we look at the miracle birth of Jesus, um, that we would be reminded of just how glorious that was, how significant it was, how significant it still is in our lives, in our decisions, in our minds, in our hearts today, God, that we would be encouraged And that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. It says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The priests stand ministering, offering repeatedly that which. Can never take away sins. There was something missing. True Israelites knew there was something missing. I'm going to turn, I'm going to turn from place to place today. Um, over in Isaiah, and we'll spend a little time in Isaiah, but in Isaiah chapter one, verse 11, he says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? says the Lord I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats when you come to me when you come to appear before me who has required this from your hand to trample my courts bring no more futile sacrifices incense is an abomination to me the new moons the sabbath and the calling of assemblies I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even, through, even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Psalm fifty-one sixteen says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The reality of the situation before Christ was that the sacrificial system was simply a constant reminder of death in the world. It could not save. And it would not save. So I'm going to give a very fast overview. What what, what I'm trying to do, and this is hard for us to imagine... What I would like for us to do is be able to imagine what it was like being an Israelite before Christ came. To wait, to be one of the ones waiting on the Messiah. So I'm going to give a brief overview, basically, of the history of mankind. So if you'll turn to Genesis, well, you don't have to turn there, but Genesis 1 and verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. If you were here last week, you heard Paul preach. I didn't know this. In many traditions, Christmas Eve was considered Adam and Eve day. And the reason he got it wrong, the reason was because Adam looked at Eve and said, he, he was confused on the day, Adam was, and he said, it's Christmas, Eve, Eve. Typical dad joke. (laughs) I was going to tell Paul he had it wrong, but I just didn't have the heart. No, the reason they called it Adam and Eve Day was because before Christ came, you had sin. And what we saw here is when God created the world, he looked at it and said, behold, it is very good. Everything was perfect. The earth, before sin entered in, was truly paradise. The work was minimal and extremely productive. I think about this on occasion, and I think about our time in glory when it comes. Work won't cease. Adam was, Adam was employed. He was, he was, his, one of his duties was to tend the Garden of Eden. He was to work. But our work will be productive. Has anybody ever had one of those days, that they come extremely rare if you work for a living, where everything goes right? When you have one of those, your job's pretty enjoyable, right? And construction guys know it. Uh, You know, if you're a mechanic, you know it. Things don't go right, and we spend time working, just spinning our wheels. Because our work is not very productive, that's a result of the curse. But if you can picture paradise, if you can picture when God created this... The work, whenever you put your hand to something, it would have went right. The trees produced an abundance of fruit. And imagine this. I had never thought about this until I was studying this and just thinking about it. The fruit doesn't rot. You don't have to rush out there because, hey, the fruit's ripe. We've got to get it before the birds. And you've got to go and then we're going to work, work, work to preserve it so that it will be there when the tree's not making fruit. no. The fruit was always there. You had to go pick it. But if it it didn't fall to the ground, it didn't rot. If you didn't get it quick enough, it was still there the next day. That's amazing. And just however great you can imagine it, that's what it was, except better. I don't think we can picture how good, when God says the earth was very good, I don't think we can fully wrap our mind around how great that was. But the most amazing part of it not the Not the amazing fruit, not the amazing uh, productivity, I mean the animals you could apparently talk to them, all those things, but the, the most amazing part was that God would come and commune with man. We see it in chapter three after the fall, God comes down, he walks with them, he comes in the cool of the morning to visit with them, and they have this amazing relationship. Personal relationship with their creator. And then you get to Genesis 3 and in comes the sin. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I think most everybody is familiar. The serpent comes along. He's subtle. He's deceptive. He deceives Eve. And then Eve convinces Adam. And the whole premise of the thing was they wanted to be like God. The serpent said, Behold, God knows when you eat of this fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So they break the one rule God gave them. They wanted more knowledge, more power, more control, so they break that rule. And from that point forward, the relationship between mankind and God was severed. It was severed. It would never be the same, at least in those terms. God would never walk down and commune with them, with Adam and Eve especially. But look at verse, in chapter three, Genesis chapter three, in verse 23, I think this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. He says, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God separated man from himself. The man and the woman who he created was no longer allowed in his presence because of sin. And every one of their offspring from that point forward would be born into that same curse. Mankind was now corrupt. God was still holy. Mankind was still corrupt. The taintedness of sin would keep them from the presence of God. His holiness could not allow it. And so this is where humanity was left after the fall. The very next chapter, you have the first murder, right? You have Cain killing Abel, brother killing brother, You have a you can read it and you can see just the snarkiness of Cain when God actually talks to him. And this is not when God talks from that that point on, it's not the same way he communed with Adam and Eve. He would talk in a more of a distant sense. But he responds with a deception and a and a snarkiness. Am I my brother's keeper? You can see it, right? The relationship to God is now We have to sacrifice, and we have to atone, and we are not worthy. It is no longer the sweet communion that Adam had with God in the garden, where he would walk with people. Now it's a relationship. The only relationship man has at this point is one of that requires blood, and it requires death, because sin requires a blood sacrifice. This goes on for over a 1,000 years, 1,500 years, and humankind gets worse and worse and worse to the point where God destroys all of them except for one family, Noah and his family. He says, what is that? Less than 1%. We don't know how many were on the earth, but he, he destroys all but eight. And yet, very soon after that, we see the same corruption. Why? Because mankind was tainted. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but his offspring were tainted with sin. And not too long after that, here you got man trying to build a tower so tall that they can sit on it like God. Right? They wanted to be known like God. It always comes back to man wanting to be like God, wanting to be on the throne. The reality is, whether you will admit it or not, at some point in all of our lives, we wanted to be king. We wanted to be sovereign over our own life. And the, the, the reality is, even after we're saved, we still fight with that. But an unbeliever wants to be sovereign over his own life or her own life. They want to be king. They want to be on the throne. And so God brings more judgment. That's when he brought the confusion in. Languages came in. They couldn't communicate anymore. They had to be scattered. And then you bring in the law of Moses. As a grace, the law of Moses came. Why? They needed parameters. Our our sinful nature is so bad, you have to have something to try to keep us from going completely off the rails, right? So he brings in the law of Moses. And so now we're starting to see what would ancient Israel think about. How would they perceive the world? How would they perceive themselves? Well, there's two things I think anybody from Moses until Christ would have understood very well if they were taught in the Scriptures. The first is that um, the holiness of God. The teaching of the Old Testament makes this very, very clear. Leviticus, as the law came, Leviticus 11.44 says, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, is holy. It was taught to them very well that God is holy. God is separate. He is here. We are here. The second thing that ancient Israel would have understood is that sin is very serious. And this is something I think somewhat we're missing in our world today. But they were constantly reminded of how serious sin was by their death. So you're trying to picture yourself in this ancient time. You understand all of this, right? You would have been taught the truth of the creation and the fall, and they, you no doubt would have seen the effects of sin. And think about the effects of sin. There was constant reminders in this time. In the time of Christ, first off, they had to sacrifice animals, right? And probably most people in here has never been point blank at an animal. Uh, maybe some have, I don't know. And sacrificed it, killed it. Hunters, it's, it's at a distance. It's a lot different shooting something at a distance than it is right up close. But they didn't even get the the ease of shooting it. They had to cut its throat and watch it bleed out. And they had to do this at least once a year, more than once, most of them. So there was a constant reminder of death. It, we went to the Creation Museum, if you ever get a chance, the one in, that, uh, Ken Ham put together in Kentucky. Not the Ark, but it's not far from the Ark, so you can do both in one trip. But it's a great, great museum. And it does a great job of, you're going through, it starts you in the Garden of Eden, and you go through, and everything's just pristine, right? There's trees and greenery, and everything's great. And then after the fall, it shows God sacrifice a lamb to cover their sin, to cover their they're closed. And then the very you kind of go through this room and the next part it shows death for the first time. Death of the animals, death of of people. It's hard for us to imagine a life without death, but Adam and Eve had experienced it. And then now you have this death and you have this constant reminder in their sacrifices, in their loved ones. We have a constant reminder of sin anytime somebody passes away. Any Anytime somebody dies, it should remind us that that is sin. Paul, Paul Wilson said one day, and it just rung true in my, my mind, he said, death is an intruder. It wasn't part of the original design. Death comes in and steals. But as long as we have this problem of this curse, it's going to be there. And it's a constant reminder that our sin is what caused it. You know, the life expectancy of the time of Christ was roughly 35 to 40 years. That was how old people lived. That's not very old. Um, The infant mortality rate was over 30%. You think these people didn't understand death. Almost every one of them had lost a baby. If they were old enough to have a baby, by the chances here, they had lost one. They understood death and it was a constant reminder of sin. And through the rituals and feasts held at the temple, Jews were very aware of the gap between God and man. The design of the temple itself taught this, right? You had the Holy of Holies. The inner room of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that is where God dwelt. Right? He filled it with His Shekinah glory. That's where He was. And who was allowed in there? Nobody except one, the high priest. And he was only to go in there once a year with the blood of a sacrifice. That was the it. And if he did anything wrong, he would be struck dead. That's how much separation there is between God and man. Then you had the next room. The holy court. Only the priests were allowed in there. And then you had the the, the courtyard where they would sacrifice the animals. And and no common man was allowed in there. The commoner, the Israelites, the common Israelites, were kept way back away from the presence of God. By His command. Why? Because He was so holy and we are so sinful. They understood this. We, as, a, as a, if you were an ancient Israelite, would have understood this. They weren't even allowed to get close to God, much less come into his presence. And the Jews in that day also were very aware of Deuteronomy 6, 5, which said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And anybody that ever has really considered that knows you've fallen short. They were falling short, and they knew it. The world was corrupt, and they knew it. Sin and death was overwhelming. Man, this doesn't sound like a great Christmas story yet, does it? But you have to understand the bad news to see the need for the good news. Because there was a promise. Turn to Numbers chapter 24. But there was a promise. Numbers 24, verse 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. A star and a scepter Will rise out of Judah. There is coming one. They knew, and this, this is not the first prophecy. It goes all the way back to Genesis, and you can follow the prophecies all through the Old Testament. They knew there was coming one to set this right. He was coming to make it all right. He promised, God promised someone who was both a Lord and a son, whose body would never see decay, and who was a priest forever. This was to be like no other man ever born. But I want to look at just one word here, the word scepter. Let's consider the word scepter just for a moment. The definition in Webster defined the scepter like this, a staff or baton borne by kings on solemn occasions as a badge of authority, hence the appropriate in sign of royalty and in sign of higher antiquity than the crown. That's what the scepter is. Uh, uh, One theologian went on and said, The royal owner literally held in his hand the key to life and death. His was the last word, and holding the scepter signified that his authority was absolute. Remember that. And as we turn to Isaiah, back to Isaiah chapter 9. This one is probably a little more familiar to you. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom... To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now remember, you're trying to remember what this is like. You don't, it's hard to not know the Christmas story, right? It's hard to not know looking on back on how things turned out. But if you can imagine being an ancient Jew, being an ancient Israelite, what does this mean? A child is born? A baby? Who is this child of promise? Turn to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. He says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me. The one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. So, something that we need to remember when we talk, when we talk about the incarnation of Christ, He is to be sent by God the Father. We do not want to get the gospel confused in that it was Jesus alone or God the Son alone. Let us not forget the entirety of the Trinity is to be praised for salvation. God the Father is just as much a part of salvation as God the Son, as is God the Holy Spirit. But He is sent by God the Father to Bethlehem. and We're going to come back to this in a minute, but the name Bethlehem actually has two meanings. I didn't know this. I discovered this this week. it's, It's an amazing thing. The one I did know was that it's called the house of bread. But it can also mean... The house of war. So we're gonna come back to that. But out of this house, the one that is to be ruler in Israel, and where is he coming? From where is he coming? From everlasting. The picture's becoming more clear now, right? As we as we are in ancient Israel and we're seeing the prophecies come forth. Isaiah cleared things up a lot. And now you see Micah, and we're going to see Malachi. We're starting to see who this is, right? He's going to be ruler in Israel from everlasting. From everlasting. Who is this child from everlasting? As we await this promised one, we're starting to see who this could be. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Mighty God. And he will rule in Israel. And as we anxiously await this promised Messiah, we get 400 plus years of silence. Malachi was the last one to to prophesy of the Messiah. In chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And that's the last. That's the last you hear of the Messiah for 400 years. That's the last you hear from God for 400 years. He was silent as far as we know. There is no scripture. So we're waiting. We're watching. Can you put yourself in ancient Israel? You're sacrificing year after year. Your children learn the sacrificial system. They're sacrificing year after year. Death and blood poured out. You're continuing failing and falling into sin. Falling short of the greatest commandment. Knowing that we could never love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. But you're putting your faith in the one to come. And now, let's turn to Luke. Luke chapter 1. Verse 13, the silence is broken. 400 plus years. The United States hasn't even been a country for 400 years. Not even 300. We can't picture that amount of time, but that's how long God's people went without hearing directly from Him. Now, of course, they had the scriptures. They had the old scriptures in which they trusted. And so now we get to Luke chapter 1, verse 13. He says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. For your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn away, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father's to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the silence broken by a messenger, one angel named Gabriel. And of course, this is talking about John the Baptist, right? He's He's the messenger that was prophesied in Malachi to come and prepare the way of the Lord. Is this it? So now think it. Is this it? John has been prophesied. Will the Messiah finally come? Turn to verse 20, or just skip down to verse 26. I'm going to read quite a bit here. But now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, And now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month of her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So the promise is being fulfilled. Can you imagine, Mary? Mary? Most think she was probably extremely young, 14 to 16, somewhere in there. And she's the only one right now that knows the promise is being fulfilled in me. Wow. Might have been a little overwhelming for her. I would have loved to hear the prayers of Mary. Well we hear the, the song of Mary, we actually hear or we see, but but the promise is being fulfilled. But only a few have heard these messages, right? Zachariah knows it. Mary knows it. But look at verse thirty two. Look back at verse thirty two. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne. ...of his father David. He will reign forever. His kingdom will never end. We're starting to see more of a picture, right? As Mary is preparing for this to come come forth. Now, if you look at Luke chapter 2... ...we're going to read verse 4 through 7. Joseph also went up from Galilee... ...out of the city of Nazareth... ...into Judea, the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the end. The long-awaited Messiah has come. The Promised One has arrived in the most humble of ways. It is incredible to think about the humility of our Lord. The meekness of our Lord is an incredible thing to ponder on. He comes born as a baby, and in the most unlikely of places, a stable with the livestock laid in a manger. I mean there's symbol sim, I mean there's so much symbolic references in all of this that I don't have time to get into but when we look at the humility of our lord it really puts it really just makes a shame makes it makes me ashamed of when I see the flauntingness of so-called christians out there I saw one the other day where Jesus was coming it was some guy dressed like Jesus apparently and he was coming in on some sort of skyline wire coming down into the church. And I'm just telling you, that is sickening. Christ came as a baby in a little stable. And from that position, He saved the world. Maybe we ought to take a little bit of note on humility from that. But He comes in the most humble of ways but the amazing thing, when you remember in, in Matthew, when the Magi come and they're they're feasting with Herod and they're looking for, for the for Christ, for the Messiah, and the Magi ask, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And let's stop and think about that for a second. Who has ever been born a king? That doesn't happen on this earth. They're born as princes. Men can be born as princes all the time, but never are they born as a king, right? They have to be put on a the throne. They have to earn their way to the throne. They have to have somebody else place them on the throne and somebody place a crown in their hand and give away their authority and hand it to them as a scepter, but not this king. He was born a king. This is incredible. The scepter was prophesied. It was prophesied to him, and the moment his hand came out of the womb, it was holding the scepter. Who is this one who was born king of the Jews? He is the sovereign king whose kingdom will never end. Who is this one from everlasting, born king of the Jews? He's God. He's God made man. He's God become flesh. This is why Christmas is important. Not because it's December, not because it's any of this other stuff, but it's to remind us of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Born of a virgin. So what was the purpose? The wait is over. The Christ has come. He's a little baby laying in a manger. And we know very little of his life growing up. We know very little. But what was the purpose of this Messiah coming, the long-awaited one? And to answer this question, we'll go back to the word Bethlehem. The house of bread. Oh, how the world was in a famine We experienced a pretty good drought this summer. We can kind of, you can kind of see, apart from really good technology and practices, uh, you can see what a drought could really do. If you can go back to ancient times and and see that same kind of drought, we can kind of understand what a famine is. And that's what the world was in. The earth was scorched and the people starved. Where else can we obtain nourishment than from the bread of life, from the Christ? They tried Sinai, right? We've all tried Sinai in some way. We've tried the law. We've tried to go to our own works for nourishment. But there's only thorns and bitter herbs found from that mountain. There is no nourishment. There is no sustenance there. But here in Bethlehem, the bread of life was first-handed. To mankind. And it is a lasting, sweet, satisfying food. So the first part of the answer. Of the purpose of this. Is just that. Jesus came to give life. And he gives it abundantly. And there's many in here. Who I can see the abundance of life in. That would not have had life. If you are saved. If you are a believer in Christ. You are in that category. It is an amazing thing. When I look at my own life. And I think of where I would be. What I would be. Who I would be. And it's everything but Christ. Everything but righteous. But he gave me that sweet. Satisfying abundant food. And I can go back to it. Day after day. He came to lift this curse and restore the relationship that humans had to God in the beginning. (coughs) In the garden, He walked with them in the cool of the day. And do you realize we have that privilege today? There is no longer a separation. There is no longer a holy of holies. Mankind, through Christ, can approach the throne of God with boldness. That is incredible. And he fulfills that purpose. But it also means the house of war. Bethlehem can mean the house of war. Now listen. If you do not know Bethlehem as the house of bread, it is to you a house of war. If you do not know Jesus as the bread of life, as the Savior of the world, if you do not believe in this virgin birth and this miraculous <clears throat> life lived perfectly, and the death and the resurrection, He was raised from the dead. If you don't believe that, then He is not your bread, He is your judge. <coughs> and He has come to bring war on those people. He said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. So Jesus has two purposes in his return. And that's why he came in the humblest of manners. He came to save his people from their sins, from the curse, from the wrath of God. And he does this, of course, through the rest of the gospel. He did not stay in the manger. He grew into a man, a perfect, righteous man. And he reconciled mankind back to God by fulfilling the death requirement. If you'll turn back to Hebrews. Hebrews 10, verse 12. I'm going to go back and read verse 10 again. That's where we started. No, we're not. Never mind, just read verse 12. Oh, no, verse 11 is where we started. I'm sorry. He said, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never... Take away sins. But look at verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. There is no longer the need for sacrifice because it is finished. He was the sacrifice. There's nothing else we can turn to. There's no one else we can turn to other than Christ, that bread of life. And how we are blessed to know the Incarnation. How we're blessed to praise Him and to know that Jesus was born. That He became a man. That He lived a life and He died and was resurrected. And if you haven't trusted in Him, today is the day of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus, the King. His scepter will not depart from His hand and he will rule he has full sovereign authority right remember remember what the scepter what, what he said was it was the key to life and death and you're being presented with the one who holds that scepter won't you repent and join his side won't you put your faith in him for that is why he came came in the night broadcast it to no one but shepherds so that we could be saved let's pray Father I thank you God what an amazing truth we have and what an amazing God we have who would give his son so that we could be saved who would redeem his people who did not deserve it Wow, just incredible. Let us see the awe in that. Let us remember the goodness in that, Lord. I pray as we even go and visit with our families that we would keep this in our heart. We keep this in our mind. There was opportunities that we would, that you would provide opportunities that we could share this with others. That we would remember that Jesus truly is a miracle from the point of his birth all the way to the resurrection and even the ascension. And in his name we pray. Amen.